Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. This week, we have Second Chances, Stories of Hope, Addiction, and Recovery in Alaska. This storytelling event was presented by Recover Alaska, an organization working towards a solutions-based approach to reduce excessive alcohol use and harms across the state. Today's program was recorded on September 25th at Anchorage Community Theater. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming tonight. I am really, really excited to be here, and I'm really excited to see all of you here. My name is Tiffany Hall. I'm the executive director of Recover Alaska. Recover Alaska is an organization that works to reduce excessive alcohol use and harms across the state. And we do that through advocacy, by trying to change policies to create a safer built environment for all of us. We do that through social norming changing and trying to elevate the conversation around alcohol and shift some of the stigma and blame away and celebrate things like recovery. And we do that through connecting people to services that exist, to detox, treatment, recovery services that already exist around our state. We just try to make sure everyone is aware of them. And of course, we are here tonight to share a story. Uh, I am also a person in long-term recovery, and the way that I found recovery was through hearing someone else's story. And the way that I kind of kick-started myself out of a plateau I was in in my recovery is by sharing my own story. And so I am especially thrilled to be here and to witness the coming stories of all of you. And thanks to all of you for being here. I'm gonna take my seat and invite Wesley to come out on the stage. Thank you. Welcome everyone to Second Chances, Stories of Hope, Addiction and Recovery in Alaska. My name is Wesley Brewington. I'm a person in long-term recovery, and what that looks like for me is I haven't had a drug or a drink since February 6, 2013. I am honored to be here tonight to emcee and introduce our storytellers for the night, and I thank you all for taking time to show up. This is all about Recovery Month. This is all about eliminating the stigma around addiction and alcoholism that it's not that guy that's underneath the bridge that's dirty, it could be a mom, it's, a, it's somebody's family member, it's somebody's grandma, it's somebody's son or daughter, and it's so important. So what you hear here, I encourage you to not leave it here, but to share with your families and share with your friends that what you heard here are stories of hope and that we do and we can recover and can become productive members of society. So first of all, and I'd like to introduce our first speaker, who's in such a, an amazing guy, Taylor. Dad has collapsed at the hotel and is not responding to the paramedics. That phone call started my final spiral down into addiction. My first phone call was to my best friend. My second phone call was to my Coke dealer. See if you can spot me a gram till tomorrow, like it was always, every phone call to him. It was very selfish in everything I did. My first thought was to drown the feelings I was feeling. I was crying and wailing, and just couldn't do anything to, I would do anything to make the pain go away. Without thought to other people, without thought to my family, to my wife, to my daughter. 
Everything I ever did was just to get that next fix. Followed was eight months of straight hell for everyone I knew, for myself especially. I, uh, September of 2016, I was at my wit's end. I'd thrown away my marriage, thrown away multiple jobs. Almost every job I've ever had, I got fired because of my addictions. I, uh, was at my wit's end on the verge of a breakdown. And that morning, I was planning on how I could kill myself without hurting very many other people. Ready to take a drive on the wrong way on the highway. I was five minutes from heading out when I decided to try the suicide prevention hotline. I could hear the gentleman Googling on the other end, so I hung up rather quickly. That wasn't helped. I already Googled everything I could think of, and he didn't offer me anything else. I was putting my car, my truck into drive when I got a text out of nowhere from my sister that we barely ever spoke and just said, are you okay? And I literally broke down. I started crying, basically screaming, wailing. And I called her and said, no, I'm not okay. So I went, she helped me out and got me over to Providence. I spent a week at Providence Mental Health Unit where I was introduced to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I didn't know at that time, but that was gonna save my life. Uh, shortly after that, I went down to treatment down in Washington and began my journey there to actually my journey in recovery. While I was there, my daughter ran away and I finally felt the powerlessness of my life. I could not control who, what I was doing. I couldn't control anything. She ran away. I couldn't do anything about it. I literally lost my I uh, was crying, screaming again, and scaring all the other inmates, as we called ourselves. But then one of the associate counselors came out and asked me if I'd tried praying about it. And I was raised Mormon, so I'd rebelled a long time ago against that. And I didn't really know how to pray anymore. But I decided to give it a shot. I went in and got on my knees and started praying and instantly felt relief. I felt a weight lifted off my shoulders. Immediately after that, they uh, offered a meditation session, and I went into there, and even more so, that was a miracle to me that something just in my own brain could actually help me out without having to drown it or covered up with drugs. Since that day, I've started every day and end every day with prayer and meditation. I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works. All I know is that it works. That's what works for me. I've uh, celebrated two years last week and that's something I never thought I would have made. And I know I've hurt my ex-wife and I still love her. She's still my best friend today, but I have a lot to do before I can get back to her. My daughter and I have a better relationship now than we ever had before. I can be open and honest with her and hopefully she'll learn from my example not to go down the path I went down. Everything's not all roses. There's still hard days, my brain's still stupid, but I'm getting a lot better at it. I have hope, I never had hope before. I would do anything I could just to make people hear what I thought they wanted to hear. But, that, yeah, it was just a show for myself. I'm sure nobody ever bought it. But I know today that with the tools I've learned through Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, from the treatment center, tools I have today will help me get through this. I can do this without drugs and alcohol. I've been doing it without drugs and alcohol. 
All it took was asking for help. Help, <laughs> it's hard to do, but that's what worked for me. So if you are struggling, I hope you find the help that you need and that just know that you can do this. If I can do this, I know you can. So thank you very much. Our next speaker was at nine months after Alaska became a state, our next speaker was born. <laughs> and I just really think that's amazing. So without further ado, help me in welcoming Chris. Good evening, everybody. My name is Chris. Uh, I was born in one of 10 kids to a German Catholic family. I have three older brothers, three younger brothers, and three younger sisters. Uh, my job was to help mom take care of my younger siblings. Nobody asked me if I wanted to do it. I did not want to do it. I grew up pissed. <laughs> um, actually, though, thinking back, I believe I was born restless, irritable, and discontent. Um, it's just by nature. Um, I started smoking cigarettes at 11. I started smoking pot at 14. At 16, I had my wisdom teeth extracted, and I got to try painkillers for the first time, and I was sold. Um, I never looked back after that. I uh, couldn't wait to get out of that house because I knew the house was my problem. Uh, but when I got out of the house, I didn't know what the hell I was supposed to do. And so I just started pinging. And I spent 26 years of my life doing that, trying to figure out what it was I was supposed to be doing here on this earth and not having a clue. And, uh, and, um, and so I just continued to do drugs and drink alcohol because that was the only way I could feel anything besides fear and anger. Um, and when I was 30 years old or so, I realized to myself that I had a problem, but to everybody else I did not have a problem. Um, and I was going to quit. I was always going to quit. Next day, after this, after that, next day. Tomorrow was always a good day. Uh, and when I was pushing 40, I realized that nothing was going to change. I could not do it on my own. And so I woke up another morning, condemned to another day, and I said, help me. And I did not know who or what I was asking for help from. I only knew that I could not do it on my own. <clears throat> In real short order, I ended up in rehab, which is not exactly what I had in mind, but that's where I ended up. <laughs> and, uh, and I started to learn about the disease of alcoholism, the disease of addiction. And, uh, and I realized I was taught to believe everything that I believed growing up, and so I could relearn. And, uh, and what I learned right off the bat was that I was not a bad person trying to get good. I was a sick person trying to get well. And that changed everything for me. Um, I was going to commit suicide before I got into uh, rehab because I figured that was the only way out. Uh, every day I'd leave rehab, I'd say, okay, I'll come back again tomorrow. And I could always kill myself later. Um, and tomorrow became tomorrow became tomorrow. And I ended up, uh, it was a requirement to go to AA meetings, but I wasn't an alcoholic, I was an addict. So I went to AA meetings, but I introduced myself as an alcoholic, uh, addict, excuse me. Um, and I've had two relapses since I've been in recovery. I started in 2000. First relapse was my husband and I said that if we made it to our next anniversary, we would do this. And we were looking at 19 years then. 
Uh, at 21 years, we ended up going down to Mexico to celebrate our 20th anniversary. <laughs> we were a little behind, but we did all right. Um, it was a horrendous flight down. When I got off the plane, I walked straight into a pharmacia right in the lobby of the airport. And I made a deal with myself right then and there that if I did not go into any of the pharmacies that I would allow myself to drink uh, with my meals in the evening. And that's what I did for the week I was down there. And it worked out okay. And I was not gonna tell anybody, nobody at all. But after a while, that darkness inside started to come back. And, uh, and I started not to be able to look people in the eyes again because I was hiding a secret. And I also learned that I'm only as sick as my secrets. So after a while, I spoke with my sponsor and we decided that I would just go ahead, take some time off of my recovery and introduce myself as an alcoholic. Because what I realized is when push comes to shove, I will drink. So I did that in my home group. And I did not realize how uh, my introducing myself as an alcoholic affected them. I mean, excuse me, as an addict. So when I introduced myself as an uh, alcoholic for the first time, the whole room just erupted. It was like, she's finally arrived. <laughs> um, second time I relapsed, uh, hubby and I had broken up because we couldn't live the way we were living anymore. And, uh, and I had a safe place to go to, and I knew that the next time I saw him was to bury him. And so what ended up happening was, is uh, the one thing I never thought would happen because I'd been trying for 10 years to get him into AA. So when I left, he joined AA. <laughs> Six months later, I relapsed because I did not expect him to ever be there. Uh, and I got to learn what YETS were all about then. Uh, and it stands for you're eligible too. And I lost my first job and I lost my self-respect again and I got to climb up and each time I relapsed I have a wonderful sponsor she's been beside me for 18 years now and she would brush me off and say okay Chris get back up you can do this go back and I would what's life like for me today today my husband and I are looking at celebrating 38 years of marriage in January Coming up on eight years of recovery, officially he now has six months more than I do. <laughs> and he loves it. <laughs> and we get to laugh about it, and it's okay. Uh, I have a grandson who loves us to pieces. He knows every time he comes over exactly what he's going to, uh, to get us. I want to share one other thing. Uh, I almost forgot. When I was driving, my husband and I were driving down the Seward Highway when, or shortly after I got into recovery, and I was thinking about the 12 steps, and six and seven came into my mind, and six says we were entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character, and step seven says we humbly asked him to remove. And I said, oh yeah, I'm ready. And please, please take these. And this weight lifted off of me that I didn't even know I was carrying. And for the first time I looked up and I looked out and I was able to see in color without drugs or alcohol. So that's what recovery has done for me. We have another grandchild on the way. <laughs> Babies do 420. <laughs> <laughs>
my grandchild. <laughs> thank you all for being here tonight, and I just want to thank you for helping me celebrate my 59th birthday, which just happens to be this evening, so thank you. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is Second Chances, Stories of Hope, Addiction, and Recovery in Alaska, presented by Recover Alaska. Program host Wesley Brewington speaks next. I like, I've been waiting patiently to introduce this guy, because he's a big timer. And what a big timer means is that you have a lot of years in recovery. This guy's been sober since I was two years old. <laughs> right? He's a rock star, he also plays the guitar. Um, our next speaker, Please help me welcome Russ. Yeah, good evening everybody. I'm Russ Soster. I was originally from Dillingham. And I, I drank for 22 years. And uh, my sobriety date is May 1st, 1987. Woo. One day at a time. 1979, my mother uh, passed away, and being in 302 heavy equipment operators, and I ended up living on the streets of Fourth Avenue for about a year and a half because I, I tried to drink myself to death, you know, because my heart was broken, you know, <clears throat> you know, I lost my mother, you know, and that really devastated me, and and uh, so I was on the streets of Fourth Avenue for about a year and a half. Uh, there was about four or five of us drinking in this hotel room, and it was December 8th. And while we passed out, the guy or whoever it was came in there and we woke up, we didn't have no jackets. So I heard about the Salvation Army, which was on 8th and C. So I decided, well, I'm getting tired of drip, uh, living on the streets, you know, and maybe I wanna, you know, kinda feel a little better, you know. So I went into, uh, the Salvation Army, and that was in 1981. I started repairing furniture for about two and a half months. And a gentleman there that ran the Salvation Army called me in his office and he said, Russ, uh, me and this other guy were thinking about, we need somebody to be a residential manager here for Salvation Army. He said, would you like the job? And I thought about it. He says, yeah. I said, well, what, what would I do? He says, well, you pick up donations all over Anchorage and, uh, and you take uh, the clients out to Clithrow uh, for a dance on a Saturday <coughs> night. And I says, well, you know, I'm not doing anything. Why not, right? So I was in charge of 46 grown-up alcoholics. <laughs> and, they're, and they're asking me, they say, asking me, how do you stay sober? I says, well, I don't know, man, I just don't drink. <laughs> you know, and, and one of my jobs was on a Tuesday night was to give an AA meeting. And that was the first time I was encountered with the big book, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous book, uh, edition three. But we kind of winged it, you know, through the, you know, through the uh, AA meetings there. And uh, being employed there, I was off on Thursdays and Fridays, you know, so I got my first paycheck, and my mind up here was thinking, okay, I'm gonna get on a bus, and I'm gonna take off for two days, and I went over to my blood brother's place there, but before I went to his place, I went to the liquor store, I got him his case of beer, and I got my jug. 
So I drank for two days and I did that for about two months. Every time I had a, uh, uh, two days off, I was drinking, but I had to come back Saturday to take the people out to Clithro for this dance. And after a while there, I was doing that, but then uh, I, I went in there and I told Bob Swain, I said, you know, Bob, I haven't been being honest with you. I don't have a desire to stay sober yet. And that was in 1981. 1985, I had a DWI. 1986, I had another DWI. My older sister uh, came over to my other sister's house and she says, yeah, Brother Russ, we're going to our native corporation meeting. Would you like to come along? And, and I've been drinking all night, so I was kind of half shot. And I said, well, she came to pick me up. I might as well go. So I went and I was at the Sheraton Hotel and I'm sitting there and I started drinking hot coffee. Then I started drinking cold water. Then I started getting the shakes and my eyes were rolling back and I could see bright lights, you know, and I was just shaking. And my younger, my younger sister, Darlene, I said, Darlene, you got any money? I need, I need to get a drink. I thought I needed a drink. She said, yeah, brother, I like, we got it. You know, we walked down the stairs there and I'm, I'll never forget it, but 30, 31 years ago, I'm trying to drink this beer and I'm shaking and it's hitting my teeth and it's going all over my clothes. And somebody told me up here, says, Russ, you tell your older sister and younger sister that you're not gonna drink again. And I said, Mert and Darlene, I says, you'll never see your brother touching up another drop of alcohol again. And like I said, it's been 31 years now. I was on, uh, Spillard Road, you know, now this is divine intervention, you know, because this guy come up to me, you know, and I'm kind of shaking. And he says, would you like to go to a, a meeting with me? I says, a meeting? What meeting are you going to? He says, I'm going to an AA meeting. And I said, yeah, okay. So I started going to meetings at West 27th. And, uh, and I started hearing positive things, men and women talking, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, and then, about two or three days I've been going to this meeting and my girlfriend came and she had some booze and she had pot, you know, and I told her, I said, Rosie, you know, I'm not drinking anymore. If you want to stop drinking, you can stay with me. If not, there's the door. We buried her 15 years ago because of her drinking. Today, what I do today is I, I go to a lot of AA meetings. I don't drink in between meetings. I don't hang around people who are drinking or using. Uh, I, you know, I, I have to do the deal. I have to go to any links to stay clean and sober. See, I look at it this way is that, you know, God brought me to AA, AA brought me to God. Thank you. Thank you, Russ. Let's give another hand for Russ. all of our storytellers have shared so far. Thank you. What we can see right now is that we're all so different, but we're all really the same, right? Addiction, alcoholism does not discriminate. It doesn't matter what color you are, what demographic, how much money you make a month. Addiction and alcoholism is a disease. And a lot of people out here that have recovered. And I just want to thank you guys for sharing your stories and getting up here with your courage. Um, right now I'd like to, I'm going to just share a little bit about me and what I do today. So like I said, I've been clean and sober 
for five years. I, um, I led a life of wreckage behind me for a long time. I used from when I was 14 to when I was 27. Um, I'm from England. My mom's British and my father's American. And I grew up in England and I moved to America when I was a young teen. So I had a really huge culture shift. I had an accent and the girls loved it, but the guys didn't. <laughs> so I had a real hard time fitting in. So I did a lot of things to fit in. Um, and I noticed that from a very, very early age, I put a mask on and I tried to hide who I really was because I was ashamed of who I really was. Um, growing up, um, when I became, when I was like 18, I got kicked out of high school and um, just continued that spiral down and ended up catching uh, a felony when I was 27 years old. Um, I was charged with an armed robbery in the first degree and, and I was offered 15 years in jail. Um, all stemmed from my drug use and doing anything to get it. Um, I decided to, you know, to do something different. They said that, they told me that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And if, and if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I had to change something for something to change. So I decided to go to treatment. <clears throat> I, went to the, I went to a pig farm, to a pig farm out in, in, uh, in the valley. And uh, I was used to being in the hood. And so I went from the hood to the pig farm. <laughs> and I learned a lot of uh, life skills. I learned how to raise animals. I learned how to greenhouse. And I learned how to accept me for who, for who I am. And today, um, after being sober for five years, I'm the peer support supervisor at Cook Inlet Tribal Council. And what that looks like is I use my shared lived experience to help those who are in early recovery. And it's an evidence-based model of it's been practiced in the lower 48 a lot, and now they're starting to uh, really take a look at it up here as somebody to bridge the gap between um, the participant and the clinical staff. So that's just a little bit about myself, and now I got a special announcement for you guys. We have a special guest here for you guys, so I'd like to introduce Governor Walker. I'm sorry I'm a bit late uh, getting here tonight. I have not had the benefit of hearing uh, some of the stories and I although today I did hear one uh, today I was in a, um, uh, a presentation that uh, as part of the question a, a lady told the story about her upbringing and what had happened to her in her upbringing and um, uh, it was very painful to hear that resulted in a, some life choices that were uh, not good for her or her family and how she worked her way through that. We talked about the ACEs uh, program that we just did a few uh, uh, last week, a, a two-day session on that. And it was very powerful to hear her just just say that. Just I mean, it, it was not part of it. It certainly related to what I was talking about, but it, it, it was it was amazing what, uh, what she did and the way she opened up and and, uh, and, and shared with us. It was uh, something I I won't won't forget. You know, I. Uh, I spent Saturday in Kotzebue. Um, boy, it was, it was a very uh, difficult day for all of Alaska, but uh, uh, Ashley Johnson Barr's um, memorial service was something that I will never forget. It was uh, two and a half hours. Um, I would guess there were probably 2,000 people there. The, uh, the gym was um, absolutely packed. Every seat of the bleachers carried in chairs on the floor. It was, uh, I think everybody in the community and from outlying the villages were there before that service. It was extremely um, uh, grief-filled. And 
and um, it was it was well done, but it was very very difficult. So, you know, as I look at things, and I sat there as governor, I sat there and thought, was there something we could have done? Was there something we could have done that that uh, uh, that uh, she would still be alive today, would not have gone through that what she went through, and that really um, um, that stayed with me, and, and I I still ask that question, and so the. The question is, what more can we be doing? What more can we be doing on um, making sure that, that there isn't another situation like that? And it's 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 the root cause that sometimes we have to we, we sometimes don't look for um, in um, uh, challenges we have in our state. We sometimes we deal with the at the at the uh, too late in the process, and so it's a when we look at funding for education, we look at, you know, best beginning, we look at preschool, we look at, at, at starting at a, at a very young age to provide um, opportunities for, for our young people. It's so incredibly important we do that. We can't, we can't afford not to do it, is the way, is the term that I use. And, and the quote that I uh, like uh, well is that, that I've heard some years ago, is, it's, uh, it's easier to um, mold and guide a child than it is to fix an adult. And it really comes down to that, as far as those kinds of those kinds of decisions. So, so, but people, those that are willing to share their personal story, it is, it's, you know, I've often said it's not um, what is said, it's who says it, and then that is really, really true, really, really true. And when it comes from, from the heart, from the uh, uh, individual who was hurting as a result, it just means so much more than anything that I could ever say as, as a governor. <coughs> Uh, it's 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 really the the, me the messenger is, is really important in, on this issue. So that's why I'm, I'm I um, uh, appreciate what is happening uh, tonight. Uh, what is the what is the, uh, the the message tonight? And it's really for me, it's a matter of, of us uh, recognizing uh, what each of us can do. There's a young lady in um, uh, Fort Yukon I met about uh, three weeks ago. I was in Fort Yukon for a public safety forum. Her name is Kelly Fields. And she said, I am tired of drug problem in my community. I'm, I want to raise money to, for a drug dog. And she, she raised $30,000. And then she went to TCC and said, will you match that? And they said, no, we'll double that. And then they doubled that. $200,000 she raised by her standing up saying, I'm the one. I want, I'm the one that's in, in my community going to say no more. And, and look what she did. So. I get inspired by that, uh, very inspired by that. She's, she is someone you have to really pry that information out of because she's just the type of person that she's very private, she's very uh, uh, humble, but she said, I'm going to do something. And so that encourages me about what we can do in the state. Is, it's not about money, it's about attitude. It's about stepping up saying, what can I do? Let me be the one. And so that's my, my uh, that, that, so, I carry that with me from uh, from uh, Fort Yukon to the, the services in uh, in Kotzebue and said, you know, there's some, there's something each one of us can do, and it's it's unique to who we are. It's unique to what we do, and so um, so my message really is to to Alaskans now is is find out what it is that you can do because it's not somebody else's problem. It's our every one of our problems and, and we can we can do this on the, the challenges we have in our state with the the, uh, the drug issues the opioid issues the the crime issues we can 
We can do this. We can do this. That's a last one. So. God bless you, children. Thank you. This is KSKA Anchorage, and you're listening to Addressing Alaskans. Today's show is Second Chances, Stories of Hope, Addiction, and Recovery in Alaska. This storytelling event was presented by Recover Alaska, an organization working towards a solutions-based approach to reduce excessive alcohol use and harms across the state. This program was recorded on September 25th at Anchorage Community Theater. We continue with event host Wesley Brewington. Our next storyteller I'd like to introduce is a is a writer for the Anchorage Press. I just learned that his story was published earlier this month, and he wanted me to let you guys know that what, if you guys might have read it, but what he's gonna tell you today is totally different. Not that he was lying, but he's gonna tell you something totally different. <laughs> so I'd like to help me welcome R.J. Johnson. I always considered myself a social drinker. Uh, the problem is I was very, very popular and very, very social. So, Thousands of friends on Facebook, thousands of followers on Instagram. Um, I became a bartender the day I turned 21. I ran bars my entire adult life. Um, My whole life was constructed around drinking. My housemates were all bartenders. So when it got to the point that I thought I had to hide my drinking, that's when I knew I should have had a problem. And that's when everyone else figured it out. They figured it out days before me. I showed up to work to open my bar one day and a couple of my friends were there with my bosses. One of my friends handed me 10 intervention letters and she looked me in the eyes and she told me she missed me. Problem is, she was my housemate, my best friend and my coworker. So she saw me all day, every day. Um, At that point, my boss at the bar said, I'm not going to try and control anything you do, but I don't want you to come into this bar for at least 90 days. I said, okay. And that first week, I didn't really know what to do. Um, The first person that I called had been one of my drinking buddies, and he had gotten sober about two years prior to this. And he and I went out to lunch. And he told me a bunch of stuff. The first powerful thing that he told me was he asked me if my life fell out of control and if I felt worthless. I said I did. And he said, well, that's crap because for 16 years, you have been managing your money, your time, and everything else around your drinking. So you have that skill set. So that's not an excuse. You just have to figure out something else to budget your time and your money around. And the next thing he told me was a prophecy. He said, you're about to figure out exactly how many drinking buddies you have. Um, That first month was pretty awesome. My friends cleared out the wet bar in our house and filled it with soda and non-alcoholic options. And that first Sunday, they took me out to Extreme Fun Center in the Valley to show me how cool sober life could be. (laughs) And uh, every day I had people checking on me. Um, I got invited to a dinner party one day and I asked my friend Daniel to come with me. And he came over to my house to pick me up. I didn't have a car, I didn't need one. I took cabs everywhere. There was no point in having a car. We were always gonna be too drunk to drive it. Um, And right before Daniel and I were about to leave my house, I got a call from my friend and she said, don't bother about coming over to the dinner party. 
okay. Well, you know, social media, all of a sudden pictures start popping up on Snapchat, Instagram of all the people that are at her house enjoying the dinner party that I was no longer invited to. So I got mad and I asked Daniel to drive me over there. He did and I think she was a little shocked when she opened the door. And I said, what are you, what are you doing? Why, why couldn't you invite me? She said, well, Candy brought a bottle of wine and we didn't want you to be tempted. And I got really mad, first of all, because if you think I'm gonna screw up something I've worked on for a bottle of Yellowtail Chardonnay, you are sadly mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, I told her that she wasn't responsible for my sobriety, I was. What's in someone else's glass doesn't affect what I'm drinking. And that was one of the first realizations I came to, was that my recovery was my responsibility. So about three months later, um, my time up was over and I was allowed to go back to the bar that I had managed for 12 years. The bar that I had worked at, hung out at, my hobbies happened there, my friends were there, that bar was my life. When I got sober, I didn't just lose the place I worked, I lost everything. Everything that was important to me except for my home. And walking in there felt hollow and fake and at the same time very, very free because all these people came up to me to try and talk to me and it took me a little bit to realize you're not tipping me anymore. I don't have to be nice to you. <laughs> and you were always a jerk. It was only alcohol that I was drinking that ever made you interesting in the first place. And so I started realizing how little friends I actually had, and that was the first part of Matt's prophecy that came true. The majority of people that I spent time with were my drinking buddies. The next thing I realized with that prophecy was that I was a social drinker. I was out with a friend on Tuesday afternoon and Tuesday night and Wednesday afternoon and Wednesday night, and I was always drinking with a friend, but it took 14 people to drink the same way that I was because I had a different buddy for every time that I wanted to get a drink. So I realized that I needed to read up on this, I needed to talk to people. I found a mantra that I've kept with me, and that is that four quarters are better than 100 pennies. Everybody needs a certain amount of emotional wealth in their life, but you can get that from a few quality people or a bunch of so-so eh, people. So I've kept my social circle small now. But I've been very, very honest about what I'm going through. With those thousands of followers on social media, every time I get a chip, I publish that chip on social media. I create accountability for myself everywhere I go telling my story to anyone that will listen. I found a new community through theater and through places that don't allow alcohol. And I find that every time that I'm honest about my struggle and my sobriety, I find someone else that's willing to tell me their story as well. And I've found 18 year, 20 year, 22 year, 25 year superheroes just because I'm honest about what I'm going through. So it's about accountability, it's about transparency, it's about visibility. And I'm weird and I'm awkward and I'm not as cool as I thought I was when I was drunk all the time. <laughs> but I found people that like me that way anyway. So, 
For the past two years, two weeks, and five days, I have figured out how to be social without drinking. So our next storyteller I'd like to introduce, uh, I met him backstage, he told me his name was Double X. So he tried to have me pronounce his, his, uh, his native, Alaskan native um, name. But I told him I was not going to butcher it up here. Um, I told him I would take one, and his name is Kenai, which is double X. So join me in welcoming Arthur Kenai. So um, last night I uh, found out some news that was uh, pretty tragic for me, and it was very heartbreaking. And uh, you know, before when I go through these tragic and heartbreaking things that would come up in life as they do for us as human beings. I was driving to the office, you know, just because I really didn't have any other coping mechanisms. I didn't really know what to do. And I was, I was driving down the road, I was thinking, what am I gonna do? I, I can't drink anymore, I don't drink anymore. You know, the old coping mechanisms that I used to have are not applicable today. And uh, this opportunity, not this opportunity, but this occurrence, this heartbreaking, Thing that I found out yesterday would have been the perfect opportunity for me to drink, and I didn't do that, you know. And today, it's a it's a blessing to be here and be sober and be able to walk through this. Um, this was an issue when I was 14 years old. When I was 14 years old, uh, and I was into things like Pokemon and video games. I even um, won a Pokemon uh, card game contest. You know, really proud moment for me at that age. <laughs> and, uh, I remember one time I had like $20, and normally I would take this $20 and I would spend it on Pokemon cards, right? Or going to the movies with friends or, you know, junk food. But this one weekend I had a cousin who was peer pressuring me to drink with them for probably about a year. And uh, I didn't want anything to do with drinking. The, the example I see from my parents and from other people in my life is like, you know, I don't want any part of that. Um, but this weekend I, I gave in. I was like, all right, let's go for it. Let's so we get a bottle and uh, we did and I drank probably half that bottle. It was a, it was a big bottle, like a fifth, you know, and um, at 14, having never drank before, I blacked out and woke up in a laundromat, which is really weird for me because I, I didn't do laundry, you know, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was really confused. Uh, anyways, I didn't drink for like three months after that, but after three months, you know, at 14, three months can be like a lifetime, you know, at that age. I ended up drinking again and this time it was fun, you know, it was really fun. We used to uh, have these rap battles in my cousin's uh, basement apartment, and you know it was a lot of fun. But from 14 to 16, alcohol just seemed to take over my life, and I was like, man, like drinking doesn't really work with me. But I can't seem to stop. I would start to drink during the week, and I miss school. I would, uh, I started to build this, um, these credentials, you know, from the police, from the times it runs with police, right? You know, minor consumptions and stuff like that got in physical fights with my dad, and uh, something else started happening. I started to feel these feelings of depression, you know, um, which I attribute to these nine months I spent in Seattle watching my mom go through cancer, watching my friends die, their parents die, and really not having an outlet. And as these feelings started to progress, I started not really want to be here anymore. I didn't know what to do. Um, the way I grew up, we didn't really talk about things. Anything that came up, there's really no outlet for me. And I remember sitting in my bedroom one day and I had a knife in my hand. And I was sitting there having those feelings of not wanting to be here anymore. 
my dad comes in and I get this gleam of hope like, hey, he's in, we're gonna talk, we're gonna figure this out. He grabs a knife from me and he walks out, which was uh, really confusing for me. We never talked about it again. And as these feelings progress, as the dreams start to progress, I didn't know what to do again, not want to be here anymore. And I remember one night, I went to bed and I had this dream. And my, my late brother who died in a car accident came to me in this dream at this place called Fish Creek, which is in my native village. And he is dressed in these beautiful white buckskins. And he had long hair all the way down past his back. And the bottom half of his hair was like this fluorescent white, you know. The top half was black. And he had this war bonnet with these white feathers. And I was sitting there crying in this clearing. And he walked up to me and he hugged me. And he said, everything is gonna be okay. I woke up from that dream and automatically, I knew that one day everything was gonna be okay. But part of me intuitively knew that it was gonna be a long and difficult path to get there to that day when everything was gonna be okay. From 14 and the next 16 years of my life, I combated alcoholism and it tore me down each and every time. I lost jobs. Somehow I got through college, I don't know how. I showed up in accounting 202 final, nearly blacked out, walked up to turn my test and the professor looked at me with disgust pretty much. And I thought I passed that class, but I got the results back and I had to take that class again. Uh, <laughs> somehow I earned a degree through the whole process, uh, but I lost so many jobs. I lost a job with uh, straight out of graduation with the third largest construction company in the world. I came back and landed another job with a dream company I wanted to work for. You know, I, I had a son, I, I neglected him. I said I'd never drink once I had my son, but I did. And, um, you know, lost relationships. I put his mom through, you know, literal hell for seven and a half years. Uh, you know, all these things that were attributed to alcohol. And no matter what, for 10 of those 16 years that I drank, I tried actively to quit, but nothing took. And on April 18th, 2017, I was in the Captain Cook on a two-week alcohol binge, alcohol binge, and uh, I remember sitting there, and I didn't, I couldn't do it anymore. It was too much, so I poured out the rest of my liquor, and I had the decision that I'm going to get some food, and I'm going to go to sleep, and I'm going to figure this out. I got some food. I took two bites. That's all I could, you know, all I could hold down, and I started. I tried to lay down and go to sleep, and I started, uh, started convulsing, and I was had to stop. That I remember someone told me that people can die of alcohol failure, heart failure, during alcohol, uh, delirium tremens. And I jumped up, I called my sister, I was like, hey sister, I, I think I'm gonna go take a couple more drinks to taper off from this. And she's like, no, you should probably just go to the hospital, emergency room. And now I think I got this. So I called my mom, she told me the same thing. I did not think I got this. And then I dropped to my knees and I prayed. And um, next thing I know, I'm in the emergency room at the last minute medical center. And they're helping to you know, doctor me up and get me out of there so I, you know, I don't die. Um, and they, they released me and as I'm walking out, I saw this nurse in the hallway that was there with that doctor. And she said, she stopped me, she's like, hey, I was talking with this doctor and uh, he, he told me everything's gonna be okay. And that hit me pretty hard because it brought me back to that dream about my brother when he said that everything's gonna be okay one day. I lost my job, I lost my house, again, I had it, just the world was falling down around me. But I got back into action. I started to take every 
step necessary to get into recovery. And so it was a long road. And every day I had to turn it over. I had to continuously try and reach out to recovery networks, and people that were in recovery that have experienced it before, people that I could reach out to. And these stories helped me to be, get where I'm at today. Today I'm a father. I show up for my son. I love my son. Today I have a beautiful life that I'm learning how to be a husband because I didn't have those opportunities before because I couldn't show up like that. You know, I'm, I'm a business owner today, you know, a successful construction company, and I couldn't even get a job. You know, I lost all these jobs, but today I'm able to show up as a contributing member of society because of recovery. Sobriety is affording me every opportunity that alcohol took for me. And it's people like these people that are sharing today that helped me to get here today. And I just thank God so much for the opportunity to show up as a better man today. To come out here and share my story, for even if it only reaches one person, that's, you know, the guy that was me sitting on the couch drinking a half gallon. If it helps that one person, man, this is, this is all worth it. You know, because I know what that pain feels like. I know what it feels like not to want to be here anymore. And for me, that's just worth everything in the world, you know. So, I'm really grateful to be here today. Thank you so much for hearing my story. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is Second Chances, Stories of Hope, Addiction, and Recovery in Alaska, presented by Recover Alaska. We continue with program host Wesley Brewington. So just by a show of hands, how many people in this room are in recovery? Okay, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. How many people in here by a show of hands? How many other people in here know somebody, a family member, a neighbor, somebody that's struggling with the disease of alcoholism or addiction? All right, now take a look around the room. This is how serious this problem is. We all are affected by this, and that's more than 90% of this room. So our next storyteller is our last storyteller tonight, and when I heard her story last night at the uh, dress rehearsal, I almost needed some tissue. So I'd like to uh, introduce Sarah Weber. Hi, I'm Sarah. Uh, Eleven and a half months ago, I was in the intensive care unit at Providence Hospital. Um, I was an end-stage liver failure, kidney failure, I had pneumonia, a bowel obstruction, I was in a coma, I was on a ventilator, and my family, my husband and my kids, and my extended family and friends were told that I had a 5% chance of surviving. And they all came in and proceeded to say their goodbyes. What got me there was alcohol. Uh, I started out as a, you know, recreational drinker, uh, ritualistic drinker, um, uh, habitual drinker, and then it became more than habit. It became ingrained into every aspect of my life. Um, my family started to notice, and when it started, I started being called out on it. I started concealing it, so I would hide bottles everywhere. My husband would bring them out and put them on display for me, and I would hide them again, and then wait till they went to work, and then I would dispose of them somewhere, usually other than our house. I was so deceptive. Um, you know, we he battled with me for two years, at least, on getting some sort of help, but I was too stubborn. I was like, I got this, I got this. Um, I can do this on my own. Uh, I couldn't, I tried. Tried several times, I would convulse, I would be violently ill for weeks trying to get myself together. Um, and my health really started to deteriorate. I got jaundice, 
my abdomen swollen, the whites of my eyes were the color of egg yolks. And I knew, leading up to my final days before going into the hospital, that I was dying. <clears throat> there was no question about it. I was in agony. Um, I don't remember the whole weekend leading up to my the start of my hospital stay, but I do remember on Monday, October 9th of 2017, I knew that this was my do or die moment. I had to get to a hospital or I was gonna die. And so my husband went to work, my kids all one by one went off to school and I waited until the school lights stopped flashing in the school zone outside of my house. And I sat on my knees on my living room floor with a phone in one hand and a bottle of vodka in the other. And that bottle of vodka had a lot of vodka in it, and it looked really simple. I knew I could drink this bottle of vodka. My problems are over. I could make this call, and shit's about to get really hard. Harder than any of this had been so far. But I didn't want my 16-year-old son to come home from school, because he would be the first one home that day and I knew that he would find me dead in my living room. I made the call. And the 911 operator seemed pretty confused when I just asked for a ride to the hospital. She asked what my emergency was, and it was the first time the words came out of my mouth, I'm an alcoholic, and I meant it. And um, she said, well, I don't really think that's an emergency. And I said, well, if you don't come and get me, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna die and I don't wanna die. So the medic showed up and I walked myself out to the ambulance, climbed in the back, laid on a gurney. They covered me up with warm blankets, started an IV, and that is the last thing I remember for two weeks. Um, when I woke up, I had doctors and nurses around me. I recognized my family, but the nurses and doctors looked like they were something out of a cartoon. Um, I, they looked like weird fairies, like I had gone, died and gone to fairy hell is what I thought. <laughs> it, was, it was really creepy. Um, I couldn't walk, I couldn't lift my head up, I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink, I had a nasal feeding tube. Um, my daughter had been flown, my oldest daughter had been flown up um, from Colorado where she was going to her freshman year of college to be there. All she was told was get get to the airport, we're putting you on a plane, your mom's dying, come home. And that's, my daughter came to see me that way. <clears throat> and uh, I started, I started to improve. I was improving rapidly. Within a week, I was, I was up walking and start, or starting to try and walk. I was able to um, pick up and take care of myself. But in the evening when my family wasn't there, the hospital staff weren't so, weren't so good to me. Um, on, a, on my daughter's birthday, my youngest daughter's birthday, October 27th, I almost bled to death and had to have a tr blood transfusion because my doctors let me bleed internally for three days without believing that I was in legitimate abdominal pain. Um, I was scolded for not having control over my body to control my own waste. Um, but then in the mornings, my husband would come in and he would hold my hands and kiss my hands and kiss my forehead and rub my hair and put chapstick on me, which I needed desperately. Um, and I, I was able to get out of the hospital within about five weeks. That was no, November 12th. Um, my first AA meeting was a week later. I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I needed something. 
And then uh, February 2nd was my first day at, uh, in treatment. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I needed something. And that was when the real work began. Holy cow, I thought it was, I thought it was agonizing wanting to walk again. This was, this was a whole other, whole other thing, but um, the rewards were so great. When I initially was out of the hospital and living in my own home with my husband and kids, and my husband didn't want me there. The trust had been so broken, he did not want me in that house. And I had to earn that back. I had to build it back up with my children by being reliable, by being honest, by being accountable, by following through with everything that I said I would do because I hadn't done that before. I hadn't done it for years. Uh, my family, extended family, my parents and my siblings, I'm the oldest of seven kids. They all had to learn to rely on me again. And learn that when I said something, I meant it, and I was going to follow through. And if I made a mistake, I was going to own it and apologize and not justify and make excuses. And that is an aspect of me that they had not seen in a long time. So, because of my recovery, and it's I'm approaching one year, um, I can be a good wife again. I get to be a good mother again. I'm a good daughter. I'm a good sister. I'm a good friend. And I think of, I don't think about the fact that I could have lost my life. I think of the fact that I could have made my husband a widower at 40. And I could have left all of my kids without a mom. And they were still so young. So, I do believe in second chances. I'm. I'm standing here as a testimony that they do exist. And I really appreciate you listening to my story tonight. Thank you. So that concludes our night of second chances. Um, I'd like to... Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks. I just had, I was so moved by tonight and by some of the things I heard. First, I really want to thank Wesley. Can you yeah. to put out there that uh, I have been moved quite a bit by tonight and I hear these stories every single week when I go to my meetings and some of you don't get to experience that so maybe this is the first time you've heard stories like this and I think you can probably feel how powerful they are. We also, we all heard Governor Walker say it's not up to, it's not any one person's problem, it is all of our problems and the solution is also up to all of us. So please, please do as Wesley already asked you tonight and talk about this issue with your family and your friends and your coworkers. And if you don't know how to talk to them, ask us. Come to recoveralaska.org and pick up the phone and call us and we will help walk you through it. We will send you articles, sign up for our web for our newsletter, we will let you know about all the things we're doing every month. You will have a chance to call your legislators during session and say, Money is important for treatment and prevention and for recovery because recovery support helps people from having to go back to treatment again and again and again and that's just part of it and we can't do it alone. We are doing all that we can but we need all of you. So please, please join us. Please don't forget all of the hope that you are feeling tonight and all of the pain that you have felt tonight and please carry it forward. Thanks very much.
Thanks for listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show was Second Chances, Stories of Hope, Addiction, and Recovery in Alaska. It was presented by Recover Alaska, an organization working towards a solutions-based approach to reduce excessive alcohol use and harms across the state. This program was recorded on September 25th at Anchorage Community Theater. If you missed part of this show or would like to see video from the event, head to the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.